Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Blaine Bartlett, and you're listening to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. This next series of episodes, I think you are going to be finding fascinating in content. Um, I pre-recorded these about a year ago or so as part of a global mindset forum that I conducted with my good friend, Ash Kandahari. You're going to be listening to some of the uh, preeminent minds on this planet when it comes to the topic of the soul of business and how you generate and work with an effective mindset that keeps you and your organization on track. So I invite you to uh, pull up a chair, grab a pen and paper, make some notes. You're gonna be fascinated by these conversations. Again, welcome to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett, and enjoy. So, Kip, I'd like to welcome you to the show, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, uh, Blaine. I'm I'm delighted to be on this uh, with you and with Ash, and um, I look forward to uh, talking about some of my favorite topics. It'll be great. <laughs> great, great. Well, yeah, I, I think I'll just jump in here. Um, you know, this is the you know the global mindset forum, and the key word there being mindset. Um, and yeah, we've got a couple of you know, front end questions here that uh, we don't have to you know, go into a lot of formal structure around, but I just want to plant some things here as a way to get conversation started. Um, so in, in you know, 38 years of uh, running this thing called the Container Store, um, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. So yeah, is there um, a challenge that you can isolate, that you consider to be one of the most difficult things uh, that uh, you and or the container store had to deal with? And I'm asking that question in terms of, you know, mindset, Uh, because right now we're in the midst of, you know, this pandemic, uh, there's social unrest, uh, there's all kinds of things going on that are challenging the way businesses are going to market, the way leaders are thinking about what they do. So from your perspective, I mean, you've run into this sort of a thing, not necessarily this confluence of things before, but this sort of perturbation, this sort of trauma, this sort of upset, what was it that stands out? And then we'll look at the mindset that you personally brought to bear around that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, 38 or 40 years is a long time. So there are ups and downs in any business in that period of time. Uh, We started in Dallas with a 1,600 square foot store and $35,000. That was our initial capital, <laughs> which was not a lot of money in 1978 either. And uh, um, aside from the, you know, you, you finally get to be a, a $5 million a year business, 
and then it doubles to 10 and then to 20 and then to 40 million and then to 80 million. That's huge growth. And, and staying up with that growth is, um, is difficult and, and, and challenging. Uh, I, I would say actually going from two to four to eight to 16 to those years, going from like 5 million to 200 million, um, that's harder than going from like 500 million to a billion. You know, I mean, that's like doubling. Um, but even that was relatively simple compared to dealing with the, um, the boom-bust cycle of our uh, really global, particularly American economic uh, cycle with, you know, recession and, and boom. And uh, the Great Recession about 10 years ago was probably the most challenging and difficult thing that, that we've seen. Right. Um, uh, now that I'm uh, retired and um, uh, Melissa Reif, my hand-chosen uh, successor and um, Sharon, my, my, my wife was the chief merchant, and the president, she chose her successor. And I don't, I don't envy them dealing with um, um, uh, COVID and, and this crisis they're dealing with now, but the, the, the great recession was the most difficult thing that we dealt with. And the way that we did that was um, um, like a family around the, the dinner table saying that, you know, we have to, we have to tighten our belts. Uh, we, um, our, our revenue was down, uh, about 15%, uh, which we'd never had a revenue decrease. You know, we were growing, uh, every year, year after year after year. So to actually have a decrease and a, a double digit decrease was something we'd never encountered. So kind of like that around the dinner table, it's like, uh, you know, we have to tighten our belts. Um, what do you all think we should do? And we did that with our group of, of top managerial leaders and vice presidents. And one of the things that we decided was that we were going to go to the rank and file, the salespeople in the stores, the entry level positions in the distribution center and ask them um, for solutions, uh, a very grassroots decision-making rather than me as a CEO deciding how we're going to get through the great recession, which nobody had ever encountered before, just like nobody's ever encountered COVID before. Um, Let's go ask the guy that's working on the distribution center floor uh, how to get through this. And what happened was we got solutions um, for reducing overhead that I would have never thought of, that the vice presidents would have never thought of. And we got buy-in from the rank and file employees uh, that we would have never dared ask for, you know? They, uh, uh, everybody's salary was frozen. You know, they wanted to get rid of 401k matches, you know, until further notice. Uh, I probably wouldn't have asked for that. Um, I probably would have uh, uh, reduced managerial uh, salaries or compensation. I probably wouldn't have asked for that from rank and file uh, uh, workers. But they, the employees were much more giving than I would have uh, asked them to be because they were saving their fellow workers uh, jobs. I committed to no layoffs, uh, you know, and I said, we've never, we never laid anybody off the entire time I was there, 38 years or so. And we didn't during the great recession, which is very tough, but they were committed to, uh, if we have 15% uh, revenue decrease, we were going to find 15% uh, overhead uh, increase. And they all went out and talked to every vendor we had, every supplier we had, every, uh, person that we dealt with and, and they got those things reduced and we actually came through the, the great recession wonderfully and the year, the next year after the great recession and, and the year after that were 
uh, arguably our two best years in our history because uh, if you stay intact and you're ready to come back, we, we came back a lot faster than most people. So layoffs are the easiest way to deal with something. Uh, they're not the best way to deal with something. But I will, I will say that that was 15% revenue uh, reduction. I have friends now in retail and friends now in the hospitality uh, 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 you know, business, uh, Danny Meyer, you know, the restaurant business, and right. you, know, you have 85% uh, revenue decline or more. And so that's, that's a little bit of a different story. But I think some of the things that we learned during the Great Recession with the grassroots decision-making, with the – it was like a bunch of old guys that went to war together. You know, they came, they came back and they told their story. I got 15% off of this from this guy. And it was, it was, it was kind of fun, you know, how, how, how well we did it. And, uh, but very, very egalitarian. And, um, yeah, that stands out in my mind. Yeah. You know, Ash, go ahead. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, you know what, what's interesting to me about that is, yeah, you talk about grass, grassroots decision making, and I, I know that you know the Fortune 100 best places to work list comes out in the you know, container store for 14 plus years. I mean, it's more than that. I think it's closer to 20 years now. Has consistently been on that list, and. When you think about employee engagement and Gallup surveys about you know, 93% disengagement in the workforce, you go to people, and this is what I heard you saying, you, you go to people because you trust that they have the intelligence to be able to make decisions that affect not only their well-being, but the well-being of those around them. And they, and they show up. They actually engage. And that kind of engagement you can't buy, you can't direct, you can't dictate, you can't do anything except invite it through the... Uh, through the way that your culture has been put together? Yeah, we're really an employee first culture. Uh, we put the employee before the customer, believe it or not. And uh, the customer can't love a business until after its employees uh, love the business. Yeah. And so uh, if you really, really take better care of your employees than anybody else, and I mean really take better care of your employees than anybody else, they will take care of your customer better than anybody else. And if those two are if those two are extremely happy, well, then there's a good chance your shareholders going to be uh, really happy too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Fortune magazine thing was great. You know, they 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 said that we were the best company to work for in America two years in a row, and then number two two years in a row. So when we would open a new store in a, in a new city, uh, you know, we have people lined up, you know, to apply for jobs, and we were able to hire. Um, well, we hired uh, about two percent of the people that applied. Uh, I really believe that one great person can do the business productivity of three good people. And I believe in paying that one great person uh, well. Uh, actually, you can pay, if you pay that one great is equal to three good, you can pay that great person double what somebody else might. You still come out ahead because you're getting three times productivity, only two times the payroll. And uh, so there's a lot to be said for uh, hiring great people and paying them well and uh, training them well and taking uh, uh, care of them. And, and you can usually see it in the, in the happiness of the, of the customers. Yeah. yeah. Kip, and I know you talk about one equals three in your book, uh, Uncontainable. And, you know, I want to, you know, just briefly just take us back to, you know, the Great Recession. And, and as, as you're seeing the, you know, the drop in the market and the reaction in the marketplace, you know, we're seeing similar things. You know, you're sharing, you know, take care of your employees and you created a commitment to not lay off anyone when a lot of people were reacting, a lot of business owners were reacting. We're kind of seeing the same thing now. I mean, look at the unemployment rate right now and what's occurring. 
my question to you is, you know, as a CEO, as, as a leader in an organization, a major organization even at, at that time, what was the feelings going on for you? How did you go beyond the feelings of just reacting to what's occurring? You know, what, what, was, what's the, what was the feelings going on for you? And, and what was the process you followed to get to where you, you, know, you, you kept your commitment and went to your employees? It was, it was, um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, COVID's harder than the Great Recession. I know that. And if, if, if you're a high-end restaurant or if you're any kind of restaurant, if you're a, a, a retailer today that's lost 100% or 50% or 80%, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 may, uh, it may require a, a layoff or, or something. Um, uh, there's, it's, it's, it's highly situational, but, um, you know, we were dealing with what we were dealing with the Great Recession, and and there's been lots of booms and busts over those 38 years. We have the uh, savings and loan crisis. You know, we have the the oil bust here 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 in Texas where we started, and um, so we we kind of got used to dealing with that. Uh, communication is a really big key to it. I mentioned the dinner dinner table, but your employees and your vendors, all of your stakeholders want to hear from you right now more than they do any other time. They're scared to death, just like you're scared to death. So that communication, you know, you, you really have to give, I believe, um, uh, un unbelievably high levels of communication all the time in building a business, but particularly during tough times. And so, but the, the mindset that you asked about is, is um, some people don't like it, but uh, leadership, Business leadership is has a lot of similarities to, to parenting. I think that that's that's not to say that employees are like children. No, they're not. But the same skill set. Um, Seventeen of our top twenty-one positions were women. Um, I actually think women make better business leaders than men for 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 a lot of reasons. Um, they they do a little better with um, um, servant leadership and communication. You can't talk about this topic without making generalizations. But yeah, generally communicate. You know. And so top-down military command structure is not what we're looking for. We're looking for servant leadership. We're looking for uh, really high levels of communication. And so for that type of leadership, we did better, um, uh, you know, with women than, 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 than men. But, um, you know, I would find women who had been out of the workforce for a long time that raised a family and they were insecure about coming back into the workforce and their managerial expertise. And they thought times had passed them by. And I would teach them to, or, or, or coach them to uh, fall back on some of the parenting um, uh, uh, things that they learn in, in, in raising a family. And there's lots and lots of parallels there. And, and that has a calming impact. When, when, when the burden of the world's on your shoulder and everybody's looking to you as the leader to get us through the Great Recession or COVID or whatever, um, you know, I think that you can feel confident in that in that mindset. Plus, I'm a big advocate of uh, immersing yourself in your work. Um, um, you know, when Monet was painting the water lilies, was he working or playing? He was doing what he wanted to do. So I, I kind of am an advocate, you know, 14 hours a day. I'm a bad one to talk to about balance. I mean, just find something you love and do it and love it. And... Um, um, and, and then there's a calmness that comes from tough times leadership and, 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 and big decisions because somewhere deep down, 
you know that nobody knows that child better than you. <laughs> nobody knows that baby of a business better than you. And you kind of calmly, with humility, are making the very best decisions that you can. And because you're transparent and, and, and a servant leader, the people that are following you uh, trust that. It's transparency really that builds, uh, that builds the trust. But um, um, that type of leadership, I think, is not too daunting. I don't think it's too terribly difficult uh, on the leader. There's a calmness to, once you've exposed your vulnerabilities and, um, and you're transparent with your people, they know that you're just a flawed human being doing the very best you can and that you're working as hard as anybody possibly can to, to get it right. There's, there's a lot of uh, peace that comes with that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you position that vulnerability um, because that's concomitant with authenticity and you talk about vulnerability and transparency. Yeah. Having people be able to get a sense that, yeah, I'm, I'm in this with you. I'm uncertain. I'm afraid too. And we're going to get through this. I mean, so that ground of being, and then, you know, you know, I hear that in the way that you describe this, what do I love? And if I, if I'm really, you know, connected to what it is that I love, there's a certainty that comes with that. Yeah, in the work that I do with leaders, sometimes the question is, how do I know what to do when I don't know what to do? Well, I go back to what do I love? What do I love? And that's the grounding point. And then I can, you know, I can move from there. Um, you, you talk about things in this language and yeah, you are, have been instrumental in the conscious capitalism movement. I um, mean, I know you're on the board of Whole Foods with John Mackey, and, and John and Raj Sisodia uh, both were uh, kind of co-founders of, of, of the conscious capitalism structure. How does conscious capitalism really, how, how is it relevant in what we're facing today in the way that you understand conscious capitalism? How is it what again? Uh, Relevant to yeah. what we're doing today, what we're, what we're encountering today with COVID, with the social unrest, with all of this stuff. Well, conscious capitalism is just um, a guy named Ed Freeman, uh, kind of a rock star, philosophy professor, at, um, ethics professor really at Darden, um, came up with the idea of the stakeholder model. And uh, I think it's just a superior form of capitalism to the, um, uh, you know, shareholder supremacy model. It's, it, people call it shareholder primacy model, which is the dominant form of capitalism practice today. Uh, I call it shareholder supremacy because a little more damning than, <laughs> and deservedly so, but you know, yeah. Milton Friedman said back 62 or something, the only reason the corporation exists is to maximize the return to shareholder. And we're like, you know, no, that, that actually doesn't work as well, even for the shareholder, as, as the stakeholder model does. You know, take better care of your employee than anybody else. She'll take care, better care of the customer than anybody else. And if they're happy and if the community's happy with you, um, I mean, gosh, when the container store moved its distribution center to Coppell, Texas, and we built a million square foot distribution center, uh, Coppell decided we were gonna, they were gonna get us, little old us in their town and because they liked our family values and they gave us the best economic package anybody had ever, ever given. We felt like Amazon or something, you know, with, 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 with what the community was doing for us. But, you know, we're great corporate citizens, really. Uh, and um, 
most of our employees move to that community, that suburb outside of Dallas. Um, <clears throat> conscious capitalism obviously enriches your life and the lives of the people you do business with, but it's, it's, it's also better for the shareholder. I mean, it's just easier to do well in business when everyone wants to see you win than it is when people are laying awake at night trying to figure out how to get back at you. So we joke that even our, we joke that even our um, landlords and lawyers want to see us win. So we get the best deals we imagine on, on real estate. Uh, the, the biggest manufacturers in the world, um, uh, more often than not, the container store will have the best price in the country from that manufacturer, not because we do more volume than Walmart or somebody like that with them, but because we have a better relationship with the vendor. And I find treating a vendor like an employee and, and having that joyful relationship uh, allows you to come up with exclusive product and great pricing and, and you go on vacation and you, and you create the world's best sweater box, you know, or shoe box or, 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 or something. And, um, and it's exclusive to you and it's perfect and, and the pricing is great. And so, um, it's just the joy of creating a win-win-win relationship uh, with with your vendors and with everyone you do business with. The the, the subtitle of the book, Uncontainable, uh, talks about uh, creating a business where everyone associates associated with that business thrives. What an honorable thing to do! You know, eight or fourteen hours a day, try to create a, a, a business where everybody thrives, and and it can be joyful. It can be a little bit like. Um, you know, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which is corny as it is, is still my favorite movie. And George Bailey, you know, in the end, the whole community supported him, he loved it, you know, and it was uh, so taking care of all of your stakeholders in the end, um, even in the medium term, uh, often in the short term, makes the, uh, uh, the shareholder do, do much, much better. So we're, we're reaching a tipping point with um, uh, conscious capitalism. We're uh, we have the business roundtable now agreeing with us. Mm -hmm. When Raj Sodia and John Mackey and I started talking about this 12 or 15 years ago, people people would roll their eyes. I mean, they would think you, that they treated us like we were seeing Kumbaya or something like that. And, and now the business roundtable is agreeing with it. I uh, had a conversation with, uh, uh, we've had conversations with people like uh, uh, Biden about it. I, I pitched conscious capitalism to Donald Trump. He, he, he proclaimed that he agrees with it. Both sides of the aisle agree with this stuff, and I think we're, we're moving towards that. Capitalism, particularly in this country, became a little bit, um, uh, the pendulum swung a little bit too far yeah. towards, uh, uh, you know, just shareholder supremacy, and it needs to, the way it was practiced in the 40s and the 50s was a lot more like conscious capitalism, and I, I think we're going back to that. But the key is, the key is, guys, um, a good capitalist is going to eventually adopt that methodology, that, that methodology, which works the best. And I am confident in my heart and soul that this methodology works better than the other methodology. And that's the way I invest. I mean, now that I'm retired, I spend a lot of time investing and I look for leaders and companies that, that behave this way. And um, um, I, I think you make a lot more money out of investing in those kind of companies. Sharon and I, when we were growing up, we invested in Whole Foods rather than Safeway. We invested in Southwest Airlines versus some of the other airlines. We invested in Costco because um, Jim Senegal, the founder of Costco, talked about this stuff before anybody else did. And we yeah. made a lot of money out of Costco. And so um, 
I, I'm very happy that all of our work with conscious capitalism is beginning to look like we're reaching a tipping point. This is the way the world's heading. It, it'll make, but I think the straight line between a better world and where we are today now is by reforming the, uh, uh, changing, perfecting uh, the role of, of business because business is so big mm. and importantly, we're all kind of tied up in our self-image and where we are at Maslow's hierarchy and need has to do with what we do for a living. So how we feel about it. And millennials are no better about that than, than baby boomers. They still cut their self-esteem has a lot to do with what they, what they do for a living. And so um, straight line between uh, where we want to be and where we are is the, uh, by making the world of business better. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely spot on in terms of my thinking in terms, yeah, and this is a mindset thing. Yeah. That shift in mindset where it, yeah, it's a stakeholder sensibility. And if I'm a, if I'm a business right now that is, you know, literally being rocked uh, by an 80% decline in revenue, who are the stakeholders I can reach out to that actually can support me? And I, you know, and, and then there's a reciprocity that comes in. You mentioned relationship, and I think that that's all any organization ultimately is at the end of the day is a relationship. And if the relationships are working well, I got a pretty good sense of being successful. I think, yeah. Then that success may look different than what I'd envisioned, but I will come out the other side of it. Yeah, you know, at least standing upright. <laughs> and it's fun. You find out what that other, let's say it's a manufacturer, a vendor somebody in the supply chain, you find out what you can do for them and what they can do for you. And, and you create synergy and you know what the people and the businesses that are doing best in the world, creating the most uh, market share and, and growing the fastest are the ones that are finding synergies uh, in, in, in their businesses. And that's a, that's a good thing as opposed to uh, oppressing each other and extracting, you know, it's, 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 um, uh, it enriches your life and the lives of the people you're doing business with. But if all you want to do is make more money quicker, uh, I would submit to you this way to do it. <laughs> so, Kip, I think, was, uh, you know, one of the things that I think holds people back, and I want to get your insight on this, and, you know, how do you take, because it is a mindset shift. It's, it's almost like the who you need to become to think from a stakeholder value perspective versus the traditional model that's been taught for so many years. It's like a transformation in, 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 in self to become this who to cause that within an organization. And, and, you know, because the society we live in is so much about what you do, you know, where you, where you are. There's so much of that pressed in through mediums. How do you go beyond that noise? And, and I want to just kind of, in a, because there's, you know, obviously entrepreneurs and business leaders right now is, what are some benchmarks to create to, to shift the mindset, like allow the possibility to occur so that the mind, you know, almost like prove the process and while you're on track to create it. Ask it a slightly different way. I'm not sure I quite yeah. get where you were. I think what I'm, what I'm asking is, you know, to, to say stakeholders, when you've been taught this traditional model of looking at P&Ls and, and when things aren't working, when things aren't working, you know, you, you go back to this traditional model that's been taught for so long in, 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 in our country. Just start with America first. And it's almost like when you want to start with, and, and thinking about just stakeholders, I mean, thinking about, you know, I go to the point of thinking about the environment. 
I think about the people within the organization, the community that it impacts, all of that. It's win, win, win in that sense. We, to shift from that to this perspective, and there is, let's say, leaders that have been you know, brought up in this traditional model of stockholders, stakeholders. And you, know, you see this in publicly traded companies. They react to the marketplace. They, they react to, to that to just change the, you know, the marketplace's perception. How do you, what are some key benchmarks that you know, small business owners, medium-sized business owners, or leaders can put in place to move towards this model of stakeholders? No, I, I, I think the traditional metrics uh, still bear this out. Um, you know, um, uh, you can also look at things like employee engagement and, and softer metrics and whatnot. And we're actually trying to get, um, in order to get Wall Street to be more long-term oriented and less short-term oriented, where uh, the, the, the big eight accounting firms and whatnot are trying to come up with metrics that measure um, um, uh, things like that. But... You know, Andrew Carnegie uh, became a, um, a, pretty, a pretty good guy by the time he died. And on his deathbed, he, when asked, uh, you know, God, you're, you're the most successful industrialist of all time, perhaps. Uh, is there anything that you attribute all your incredible business success to? And Andrew Carnegie said, yeah, there's one thing I attribute all of my business success to, and that is, uh, you know, fill the other guy's basket to the brim making money then becomes an easy proposition. Fill the other guy's basket the brim, but making money that it's like, what? And, you know, it goes exactly against everything you've heard uh, all your life. Worked for Andrew Carnegie, uh, certainly worked for the, uh, uh, for the container store. People want to do business with the companies and the people that they do business, they want to do business with. Uh, people want to trust the people they do business with. Believe it or not, business is not a zero-sum game. Someone else doesn't have to lose in order for you to win. Um, that's where, uh, you know, life is not a zero-sum game. Um, and, uh, you know, nice guys don't finish last. They usually finish first or very close to first. Uh, everybody, everybody wants to be around them. Everybody wants to do business with them. People trust them. Uh, they have opportunities. Uh, and... Um, People who uh, are transparent, people who have humility, uh, do better in business. They don't do worse in business. And uh, there's exceptions, of course. But um, so, I, and, and we are working in the conscious capitalism community, and um, Imperative 21 is a group of organizations, Lady Lynn Rothschild's inclusive capitalism organization, our conscious capitalism organization. Um, the, the B team, the B Corp, the, uh, uh, all of those people, um, uh, Just Capital. Uh, yeah. Just Capital measures the, the 2,000. You, you have a speaker that's on the board with me of Just Capital. I yeah. love Just Capital. You know, uh, it's great. To, it matters that you invest in those kinds of companies, too. But <laughs> we're coming up with more and more metrics to illustrate these types of companies uh, actually uh, do better uh, financial return-wise. Than the, than the other way. And that's, that's exciting. And, and we need more of that. Actually, the laggards are the business schools. Go. Good. Well, apologies, folks. Uh, some technical difficulties this day. But yeah, Kip was basically closing off with two points. One yeah, that he was actually referencing right there was, 
you know, B schools are not equipped right now. Business schools are not equipped right now in many ways. Some are uh, broad generalization here, but the traditional business model that is taught in schools is not where we need to be going today. The tradition, you know, leaders are not taught about relationships in, in business schools. That's not what we're taught about. Um, we're taught about, and we're certainly not taught about uh, uh, love and caring uh, as part of it. You know, we may talk about vision in a business school context, but we don't get into mindset. We don't get into things like that that make a big, big difference in what we're doing. So that was one of the things that he was going to be putting into place here. And the last thing, and I'm not sure that this actually made the edited cut, but I want to emphasize this. And, and, and Ash, you've got something that you want to say. No, so no, no, that's perfect. Go ahead. Keep going. I, 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 love, I think you're going to go where I was about to go. So go, go for it. Just, just well, share we'll that. See here. Okay. Um, but he mentions his wife, Karen, as a co-founder of the company. And this was you know, kind of a, 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 this was almost an outtake because uh, we got, we continued talking at the end of the uh, formal interview. And his point was that none of this gets done by an individual themselves. And when he was talking about Karen, he was talking in part about, I needed to have somebody to bounce ideas off of that uh, gave me free reign to actually explore my thinking. Yeah. And that's what he was, you know, referencing on that. So as a business leader, what the point he was making was get somebody that you can, you know, basically mastermind with in one sense, but also more importantly, have somebody that you can, that will check your thinking that will call bullshit on you. I mean, truly, uh, that will say, no, 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 no. Yeah, back that truck up and let's take another run at this from a different perspective. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.